Velkommen til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Mit navn er Lise Barkhansen, og jeg præsenterer denne podcast med highlights fra det Kongelige Biblioteks kulturscene i den sorte diamant. Seks Politik og litteratur er omdrejningspunkterne for denne podcast med den Nobelprisvindende forfatter Mario Vargas Josa. Den danske forfatter Carsten Jensen er Josas samtalepartner i podcasten, der er optaget i Dronningesalen i Den Sorte Diamant i København. Sammen taler de om, hvad de tre emner betyder for Josas verdensberømte forfatterskab. De taler også om den politiske udvikling i Sydamerika, og ikke mindst om Josas forsøg på at blive præsident i hjemlandet Peru. God fornøjelse. You have been writing for I think it's 55 years and I have only been following you for 40 years. Really? So I'm a bit of a late comer to your <laughs> writing. <laughs> and I have been for all these years eagerly awaiting every new novel and every new collection of essays. And Even though we haven't agreed on everything, of course, you knew nothing about that, I really never felt that our ways parted, because there was always this truthfulness truthfulness of your engagement, the passion of engagement, and the way you kept questioning, the way you always raised the biggest questions and never compromised, not with your own political engagement, not with your art. And um, so I was thinking that uh, tonight we should follow three subjects. Uh, And one is sex, which might surprise some of you, uh, but not the gentleman on the stage, because as I can tell from your writing, you have a keen interest in the subject. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about literature and the arts, mm-hmm. and we'll end up with politics. And I, I remember from, I was in, in Peru back in the early 90s, uh, where I spent three months there, traveling in lots of regions with a Danish friend, married to a Peruvian woman, Thomas Boberg. And no matter where we went, And we were asked the questions, what are you? And we said, we are writers. My friend was a writer too. Everybody said, like Mario Vargas Rosa. <laughs> And somehow we felt the doors just opened for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and now your book, uh, The Way to Paradise, has been published in, in Denmark. Uh, it was published in English. And I'm sorry to say I always had to follow you in English because my Spanish is not good enough to read your sophisticated prose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually not good enough to follow many things in, in your language. But I read the book when it was published in English, which is now 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about sex and eroticism. About sex and eroticism? Yes. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> because it is an important theme in your work. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was... Uh, Looking again at this book you wrote, um, published in 93, three years after your defeat in the presidential elections in Peru, Mm -hmm. A Fish in the Water, Mm -hmm. which of course is basically about politics, but it's in some way also very personal and very honest. I think you you are strikingly 
honest mm -hmm. about a lot of things in it. And, and you say something very interesting there. All of a sudden you start talking about um, pornography and sex and eroticism. And you say that you probably belong to the last generation to have been, who experienced uh, their kind of introduction to the sexual life in the Brussels. Yes. Well, at that, at that time, for my generation, uh, the only way in which, in which you can... Sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm very sorry. <laughs> Um, maybe it's your wife you know, wants to I, say at something. At that time, <laughs> the, the, only, the only way in which uh, uh, a young man uh, could have sexual experiences mm. was uh, or with servants or with prostitutes. It was the only way, you know? Uh, so I, I did what was the, the normal thing to do, yeah. particularly um, I was in a military school, so we were very uh, virile, we wanted to be very virile pe time of, of people, you know, and so the only way of being really virile was going to brothels, and, uh, and that's what uh, I, I, I did with my comrades of, of, the, of the academy. And afterwards, when I finished the school and I entered the university, I became a communist, you know. Uh, for a year I was in the Communist Party, and I was so ashamed of having been with prostitutes, you know. Uh, it was a horror for, for uh, communists at that time. We were very Puritan, very Puritan. We were very Stalinists and Puritans, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, and so we were deeply, deeply ashamed of what was uh, the normal sexual life of a young adult. Uh, I am of the, of the, let's say, bourgeois uh, uh, condition. Hmm? Uh, but then, as a writer, I have uh, described sexual life uh, as something essential in the life of, uh, of society, you know? Um, uh, the the puritanical tradition was very strong uh, in, in Latin America because uh, religion, uh, the, 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 the span, Spain that uh, discovered and conquered uh, Latin America was the Spain of the Inquisition, mm was the Spain of the, of the crusade against Protestantism. So uh, the puritanical uh, uh, habits were imposed in, in, in Latin America in a very strict way. Uh, they were violated, of mm. course, in the daily life. But, but this tradition was very uh, looming about our life. Mm. Uh, uh, in my family, for example, was well, very strict in, in sexual uh, relations. And, uh, um, but at the same time, and precisely because there was this repression in sexual matters, there was a very intense and active sexual life. Uh, uh, and brutality and excesses uh, were intimately linked with this kind of uh, 
discreet or secret mm -hmm. uh, sexual life. And I thought this was uh, uh, very important to be expressed in novels that uh, I wanted to, uh, well, if not reach, at least try to intend totality. Mm -hmm. I think that a novel is a, is a literary journey in which uh, totality of experience of a society expresses uh, uh, itself. Uh, uh, I don't think you can avoid you know, sex and sexual uh, life, which is so important for individuals in, in the individual life. Well, sex uh, oh, plays a very central role in, in, in in the existence, and I think in my, in my novels it, it plays also a central role, but I, I don't think in, uh, in an excessive way, you know, I, because that I think is a great distortion when eroticism becomes pornography, you know, and um, I think what is the difference between eroticism and pornography? I think it's purely a formal kind of, of differences. The, the quality of the language, the quality of the, of the way in which you approach sex is what uh, differentiates eroticism of pornography. Pornography uh, probably is uh, only bad literature. Eroticism may be good and maybe exceptionally good literature. You, you, look, in, in you, the, you don't look convinced, you know? No, no. <laughs> I am actually very convinced. I'm thinking about my next question, which is that somehow it strikes me that you go the opposite way of Gauguin, because he went to what he saw as primitive cultures, to have unrestrained sex mm -hmm. with everybody, mm -hmm. and just taking whatever he wanted. While you see eroticism as civilized, as a kind of theater, and you seem to find, oh, yes. let's say, that kind of sex that Gauguin dreamt about actually boring compared mm -hmm. to the kind of theater of eroticism between uh, the sexes. I, I, I agree. I think uh, Gauguin practiced this brutal kind mm. of sexual life because he was perfectly conscious that primitive sex is brutal sex. I think the, Sex becomes refined, uh, sublimized with civilization. Mm. It's only when uh, you create a kind of uh, uh, ritual around sex uh, using, for example, the arts, uh, painting, music, uh, uh, and, and you uh, surround sex with a kind of theatricality. Mm. It's when sex becomes refined uh, and becomes one of the, of the let's say, uh, artistic aspects of human existence. No? Um, although in the beginning, sex is a brutal, purely physical uh, manifestation of, of life, um, I think in civilization, sex becomes very, very different. 
and only at that time eroticism appears. You know? um, and uh, this is what I have tried to describe in certain of my, of my, of my novels. No? Yes. yes, because if there's one character who incarnates that, I think it must be Don Rigoberto mm -hmm. in his Quadernos, um, where, where he writes a lot about that, and there's a character we find in his, this novel again, who came mm -hmm. from In Praise of the Stepmother, who is this boy, uh, yeah. Fonchito, I think he's called. Fonchito. Fonchito, yes. Right, yeah. yes. And who seduces mature women en masse, and we somehow realize he is a kind of incarnation of Amor, the Greek mythological mm. character. But um, there is a place where, where um, Don Rigoberto says something that I think most people would find quite controversial. What? He says, when boys turn 10, they should be seduced by 30 years old women. They are aunts, teachers, or godmothers. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me tell you how um, this book was born, <laughs> El Eulogio de la Madrastra. Uh, I had a very, very good friend who was a great painter in Peru, mm -hmm. Fernando de Cislo, yes. very great painter. And we were, uh, well, very, very close, and, and one day we thought in doing a book, both, I mean doing uh, uh, a book that would be since the beginning uh, created uh, by a writer and by a painter. Um, the painter wouldn't be uh, illustrating the, the, the story, not at all. The, the idea was to do something uh, in which the participation mm. would be exactly 50, 50 percent, you know, uh, each. And, uh, and we discuss what would be the subject, and we decided that it, it will be eroticism, in which we had more or less similar ideas, you know. Uh, and it was a very interesting experience because we couldn't materialize that. We were completely disturbed by the presence of the other, and uh, so inspiration didn't come, you know, and uh, um, it was a kind of uh, uh, major obstacle, the idea of having someone who was participating since the beginning in this very secret and interior, you know, um, operation which was creating something from nothing, no? and uh, so we we decided to cancel the, the the experiment. But I I remain fascinated with the idea in which painting would be essential in the novel, as important as words and uh, ideas and. Uh, so I decided to write the book, uh, and this is what I did. I closed my eyes, and I thought in paintings that I had in the memory, that I had seen, uh, that uh, have uh, played an important role in my, let's say, erotic dreams, uh, um, and I 
fantasized stories about uh, each one of these uh, six or seven, seven paintings. And then afterwards, I invented a way to relate these stories among themselves. And it was like that that Don Rigoberto was invented, you know? Um, a man who was very refined, very, uh, that tried to, to create a kind of uh, isolated uh, territory in his life uh, to have pleasure. And he has pleasure with art, with music, with paintings, with literature. And, uh, and he lives in this uh, kind of uh, solitude uh, in which he is happy, he enjoys. And but something traumatic happened in his life. And it's this little boy that is discovering, you know, sex. Uh, and, uh, well, happens what happens, you know? Uh, and he becomes in, in infatuated with uh, her, uh, well, not his mother, but it's, it's his, what is his uh, English formula? It's a false mother, huh? It's a stepmother. A stepmother, it's yes. a stepmother, you know? Um, so my, my impression was when I was writing this story that it was not an erotic book. It was a surprise for me to discover that it was it considered is, an, it an erotic book. It is a very book. erotic book. What? It is a very erotic book. So it is an erotic book. All right, I accept, <laughs> that. I accept the verdict. But uh, and there's also it was not in my, in my, my uh, mind to write an erotic book. Uh, um, I have written erotic uh, episodes in, in practically in all, in mm. all my, my novels and in some with a more delicacy in others more, in a more brutal way, you know. And, but in, in Elogio de la Madrastra, I thought when I wrote the book that it was about painting and, uh, and about this man who um, conceives uh, life as, as an escape of, mm. of the daily uh, obligations and uh, surrounds him by only beautiful things and but I, I discovered when the book was published that it was read as an erotic uh, book, and well, and I accepted the verdict of the readers, you know, which, which is something that authors should do, you know? Well, there is a place where you say that often readers know something about the book of a writer that the writer doesn't know. Mm -hmm. But there is another passage, and I, maybe I am teasing you a bit here, in the book about uh, Don Rigoberto, where he praises erotically Margaret Thatcher, mm -hmm. <laughs> whom you met. I know you had dinner with her. But not for erotic reasons, you know. I met, for, I met her for admiration that I had for her government, for for the reform that she did in, in England. But your I, alter ego in the book yeah. has admiration in, uh, for her erotic I think in, uh, in Margaret Thatcher, in erotic terms, I think it's really excessive, you know? <laughs> 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 well, tastes can be very different, you know? <laughs> but, you know, speaking of, of this um, in praise of the stepmother and a young boy's fascination with older women. 
Um, one of your, in my eyes, most wonderful novels is on Julia and the Poet. Mm -hmm. About uh, the Julia and the scriptwriter. Yes, the scriptwriter. Julia and yes. the scriptwriter. Yeah. For some reason, uh, in Danish, it's called on Julia and. I think, I don't quite remember, but anyway, and the scriptwriter, yes. Mm -hmm. um, which also has some autobiography in it, since you yes, married your way. aunt when well, you were 19 years old. You know, you I, I met when I was a journalist in a radio in Lima. It was the first professional writer that I met. Yeah. Uh, he was a, 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 a writer of uh, radio soaps, uh, shop, soaps. Uh, uh, radio uh, novels, and uh, and he was a Bolivian, uh, and I and I was really fascinated because it was a fabric of stories, you know. She, she he wrote all the uh, radio novels that were presented in Radio Central, which was a neighboring radio on the radio in which I, I worked, you know, which was much more, let's say, refined. Uh, uh, radio Central was very popular, and because of these uh, uh, radio, radio novels that were written by this Bolivian, uh, and I went uh, several times a day to, to talk with him because uh, she was a kind of... Uh, fabric of, of stories, and uh, uh, she didn't read anything because she didn't want his style to be impregnated by other readings, you know? <laughs> and, and, and he had these in, in, incredible stories. And at the same time, he was a director of the, of the radio novels and also an actor, a brilliant actor. Mm -hmm. Always the, the, the most important role was his, you know? And, uh, and it happened something very dramatic to him. The, the, the radio started to receive telephone calls by the uh, radio escuchas, you know, saying, what is happening in the story of 11 in the morning in which uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Rosa, who was married yesterday, is not married anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and there were other calls more, more dramatic, saying, what is happening? Why a character of the novel of the 10 in the morning has jumped to the novel of the 2 in the afternoon, you know? And <laughs> so it was like that that uh, the, the radio owners discovered that his <laughs> writer and actor and director of the, of the radio novels was becoming crazy, you know? <laughs> he couldn't separate the stories and... But he's the in your novels. Stories were mixing yeah. one another, you know? And but he so is... When I, this happened in yeah. the real world, you yeah. know? And, uh, I decided immediately that one day I would write a novel about this, and that this novel would be presenting the stories that he wrote and the way in which, little by little, these stories were mixing one and, and another. But I have the, the mania of a 
let's say, realist writer. And I, I worked in this novel, but I, I discovered in a given moment that all these uh, crazy things that were happening could produce the idea that this was not a realist uh, work, but something uh, kind of uh, an experiment mm -hmm. uh, in, in in reality, mm -hmm. and uh, and I don't like it. Well, I, I come, as a reader, I like reality, but not as a writer. You know, I, as a writer, I I want to try to imitate the real world. So I decided that as a kind of anchor in the real world to put one story of my life that would give some realism yeah. to these uh, fantastic uh, fantasies that were the fantasies of the, of the scriptwriter. Um, and so I decided to put my marriage, my first marriage, which was a kind of crazy uh, radio soap, you know, so, soap, <laughs> well, well uh, and that is what I did, you know, exactly, but it was a very interesting experience. I discovered that in a novel you cannot tell true stories. That is absolutely impossible. I tried to be very objective telling my story, but it was impossible. I, I had to, to add adapt the story to the other stories, so I had to introduce little changes that little by little were uh, uh, distort, distortioning completely the, the, the real story. And it was a very interesting experience for myself because I discovered that when you write novels, you have to lie, you, you have to invent, you have to distort the, the real world if you want to be persuasive as a, as a, as a novelist. Uh, uh, so well, that's, that is the way in which this, this novel, Aunt Julia and the scriptwriter, uh, was produced. You know? you, you've written, you wrote many years later, a book called Letters to a Young Novelist. Mm -hmm. and, and in this you give the advice, lie unscrupulously. That's all right. Yes, when you yeah, write. Yeah, because when you, you, when you write yes. a novel, you are, you are lying. But uh, it's a very special kind of lie. Because when you read a novel, you, you don't expect reality would be there. No, it's, it's a fantasy, it's an invention. So a lie that presents itself as a lie is not lie anymore, mm. it's a true. It's something that comes true, you know? And I think this is the uh, curious way in which novels express reality, describe the, the real world, lying in a way that is not a lie because it's presented as a mm. lie, you know? Mm. I am not telling the truth, I am inventing, I am fantasizing, you know? So in this very, and direct way, the novels, ex the novels express the real world. In, in this book, Letters to a Young Novelist, you also say that the novel is not a genre for the satisfied. It's not what? A genre for the satisfied. No. In order to write fiction, you have to be dissatisfied with life. Absolutely. Yes. I think uh, 
That is what novels produce in readers. I think when we read a great novel, when we read uh, uh, La Montaña Magica by uh, uh, or, or, or War and Peace uh, or Don Quixote, uh, you immediately after the, the reading, you discover how mediocre, mm. how imperfect is the, the real world in which we live by comparison with the worlds that we are able to fantasize and to invent in literature. And I think this produces in us a kind of dissatisfaction with the real world, which I think is essential for progress, for, for changement. I think uh, uh, good readers of good novels become very critical of the, of the real world, and that this is a kind of engine that produces historical changes, mm. social changes, and, and probably this is one of the instruments uh, of civilization, of, uh, um, and that is probably the reason why all the, the systems that want to have control of life, since you are born until you are dead, become immediately very worried with the novels, and they establish systems of censorship, and they try to control <coughs> this activity. Um, it has happened with all dictatorships in, the, in history, you know. The first thing that they do is establish this control of the imagination, of the fantasy, uh, which produces literature. And, and um, for that reason, I think it's very important to consider that literature not only produces pleasure, pleasure, but uh, enrich the imagination, enrich the sensibility of readers, but also is one of the essential elements of a free society, of a free w world. Uh, uh, because this uh, dissatisfaction with the world, this uh, critical attitude to the world of, of, this, of citizens, I think is essential for progress, for, for transformation of, of, of society, trying to reach this perfection, this beauty of the great novels. The, the Spanish Inquisition in Latin America forbade novels. And, Absolutely, for and, 300 years, yeah. novels were forbidden in Latin America. And, then and it's very, very confused because the historians try to investigate why they've forbidden novels in, in Latin America if novels were admitted in Spain. And there is no explanation. It was a decision <coughs> taking, uh, and it lasted for 300 years. Uh, of course, uh, many novels arrived in Latin America, uh, circulated, uh, uh, Don Quixote was widely read in Latin America, but novels were not published in, in Latin America for 300 years. And um, I think one of the, of the consequences of this prohibition is saying that uh, as fantasy could not 
express itself in novels, everything was impregnated with fantasy. You talk about the revenge of the novel. Yeah, the revenge of the novel so, was that it's very difficult for Latin Americans to for Latin Americans to differentiate into the real world and the fantasy world. We are mixing all the time both things, and, and, and you, this has produced very good writers, but horrendous political problems. You know, <laughs> and when you because don't differentiate the real world of the fan fantastic world. It's chaos in, in technical, in practical terms, but this produces very good works of art. So, you, you so this is a, a consolation you to, of you, you say that um, most of Latin American politics take place in fantasy land, mm -hmm. and there is a place where you refer to a di discussion you had with Günter Grass, the German writer, mm -hmm. And, and where uh, you think that back in Germany, he is a reasonable social democrat, quite pragmatic. When it comes to uh, Latin America, he becomes very radical. Well, that, that was my, my polemic with Gunther Grass, yes. you know. You know. Um, when, when, he wa, when, when he was in Germany, he was a social democrat. He was an anti-communist, and he worked very active for the social democrats. But then, for Latin America, he said, follow the example of Cuba. So this is not reasonable, you know. If you are for Cuba, you are for Cuba in Germany and in Latin America. But no, that was not his case. He was in favor of Cuba for Latin Americans, a communist dictatorship, but in Germany and for in Europe, he wanted the social democrats. It was, you know, this contradiction and he was not aware of this contradiction, you know. I say, why communism is good for Latin Americans and is not good for Europeans? It's explain to me, you know. And he became very furious, you know. <laughs> but uh, it was an absurd contradiction. He was not the only one to think like that, you know. In Europe, many, many people thought that what was good for Latin America was not good for Europe and that what was good for Europe was not good for Latin America. This is racialism. This is racialism. If you grab a little bit behind this, there is a racial prejudice against Latin Americans, you know? Let's move on to, your, to one of your uh, novels, The War of the End of the World. Of the, yeah, the War of the End of the World, yeah. yeah. Uh, which, the which War of the End of the World is a novel that I wrote because I read an extraordinary book. Um, it's a book written by Euclides da Cunha, Osher Toys, a Brazilian one. And it's, a, it's a fa really a fantastic story, the way in which the Republic was installed in Brazil. It was a peaceful operation. Peaceful operation. The king went abroad, the monarchies went abroad, and there was no victims of this transition, and the republic was uh, a very progressive uh, institution, um, and in which the military and the intellectuals 
were in total agreement. They were for this republic, they wanted the republic to change things, uh, to rescue the, the poor people of, of Brazil, and, and they were totally convinced that the republica was good, particular for the poor, for the, uh, well, s s slavery had been abolished a few years before. So they were absolutely surprised when eight years after the establishment of the republic, uh, very far away from the capital and from the cities, in the Chertao, in the interior of, uh, of Bahia, a community of very poor, poor people uh, entered in rebellion against the republic. So they couldn't understand. They couldn't understand, and when <laughs> intellectuals don't understand what is happening, they invent a theory. So they invented a theory, and the theory was that the poor peasants of Bahia were not revolting against the republic. That was something that was done for them. So it was the, the monarchists who were organizing this rebellion, and it was particularly England, because as England had a very good relationship with the uh, Brazilian monarchy, it was England that was operating mm -hmm. this rebellion. And so they, they sent the military, they sent a company first, which was completely destroyed by the, by the peasants, and then they sent a regiment, an important regiment, uh, lead by, by a very uh, Republican colonel, uh, Moreira Cesar, who was a hero uh, in the military, particularly because he was a progressive, you know. The regiment was completely destroyed by the, by the Yagunzos, and then the army, the Brazilian army, moved to the interior of Bahia, and Euclides Acuña, the author of, of, of whom I am, I am talking about, went with the, mm -hmm. with the army in this third expedition. And it is fantastic, you know, the way in which ideology can change the vision of the, of the real world. Uh, Euclides Acuña was a very honest man, a very honest man. He went there, and what he saw was something that he had in already in his mind. So he wrote articles, which were published in Sao Paulo, explaining how the Yagunzos, the poor peasants of Bahia, were not really fighting themselves, that there were English of blue eyes and uh, rubios, you know, with... Uh, uh, that were fighting among them, and that he explained that uh, the army had found a kind of projectiles, you know, which were only used by the uh, British Navy. And so he saw what he wanted to see, and what the civilian Brazil wanted to see. But unlike other intellectuals, Euclides Acuña was able to, to change his mind after the catastrophe 
when he, he saw that 40,000 peasants had been massacred by the, by the uh, Brazilian army, he asked himself, what have we done? What, what has really happened? How this was possible? And so he wrote this marvelous book, which is Osher Toys, trying to explain what was happening in Brazil for this uh, fantastic, you know, uh, transformation of the real world in a fantasy that uh, justify, you know, the massacre of the peasants. I, I, it has happened only, only once to me. I read this book and I had the, the feeling that I should write something about this, that was something that should be, uh, uh, become a, a novel and, uh, and I, I, it was crazy. I, had, uh, I, I didn't know by, by year. I hadn't been, well, I had been in, in Rio de Janeiro, but never in Bahia. Uh, and I, I decided to write, to write this novel, uh, and I worked very, very hard, and, uh, but it was a fantastic experience, you know, because uh, the, the exploration of the territory gave me so much uh, um, ideas about the, the novel, and I think I, little by little, I understood what was happening exactly there, uh, before the peasants decided to fight. And what was happening was, was very simple. This was very isolated region in which only the, the monks, the Christian, the Catholic monks uh, entered. And they um, adoctrinated the, the, the peasants, telling them that uh, if the monarchy one day falls down and the republic uh, replaced the monarchy, it was the devil who would be in power in Brazil. So when they discover that the republic was a real thing in Brazil, eight years after eight years after the Republic was installed in Brazil, they decided to fight. And they were fighting against the devil. They were fighting against the devil. Um, and in Osher Toys, for example, Euclides Acuna tells how in a battle in which he was at, uh, uh, there, uh, he saw the army attacking the peasants, uh, shouting, Muera Inglaterra, down with England. And that the peasants answered this cry with this expression, Viva el bom Jesus. So it, it which, was which total, means? total unreal. Viva, viva, viva Dios. God, uh, uh, Jesus is Dios, no? So they were attacking a fantasy, England and Bon Jesus, the devil, you know? Uh, so it was like that that I, I, I wrote uh, La Guerra del Fin del Mundo. It was a fantastic experience, fantastic, because I, I, I went to the 21, or what, 25, I don't remember exactly how many, 
but the 25 villages in which it is said that the counselor, the consejero, the leader of the, of the rebellion, built churches. And, uh, and I remember particularly in the, in the village of the Bon Jesus, where the, the church was still uh, there, you know? And uh, it was, I was so impressed, the inscription that the, the counselor himself put, Deus e grande, God is great. Uh, and, uh, uh, so it's a, it's a novel in which I, I follow more or less the, the real thing, the real story, and I invented, of course, a, a lot. And, uh, for example, I, I had read in a book about the Spanish anarchists. You know that anarchy was very uh, important in Spain, uh, particularly in Catalonia and in Andalusia, no? uh, at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. And I, I, I had uh, read a book about a, a fraction of the anarchists in Spain that were seduced by um, the, the idea which was quite uh, popular in Europe in a given moment that the bones of the head had an explanation of the uh, psychology uh, and the, the way in which people acted uh, in real life. And, and for a certain faction of anarchists, this was the scientific justification of atheism. I, I, I was so fascinated with this idea of the anarchist phrenologist, of phrenologist anarchists, that I wanted to write something about it, but how in contemporary novels that uh, I, I, I wrote could I introduce a phrenologist anarchist, you know? <laughs> that was practically impossible. But when I wrote the novel about Canudos, of course, a phrenologist mm -hmm. anarchist was perfectly <laughs> possible in this, con in this context, in this environment. So I introduced the case of Galileo Gal, in which I was thinking for many, many, many years without knowing where to put him, you know? Uh, in, the, in the war of the end of the war, it was perfectly, perfectly possible. Because, um, for example, at the end of the war, when the counselor uh, was discovered dead by the military, they cut him his head and, and sent the head to the, to the hospital in, in, in El Salvador for the doctors to study if he had in his head the characteristics of the uh, mal absoluto. Uh, absolute evil, yes. you know? Uh, something that apparently in the science of the times was considered realist, you know? And uh, so in this crazy world, a phrenologist anarchist was perfectly acceptable. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> it is also a novel, and you've said it yourself, about the fatal misunderstandings. The what? Fatal misunderstandings mm -hmm. that these two groups who go to war have no idea about who their enemy is. They exactly. live in a fantasy world, yes. both of them. The what, both were wrong, yes. both had a false idea of the adversary, yeah. and, is this and this produced this brutal violence. Yeah. Is this somehow a very Latin America dialect? But I think this has happening practically all over Latin America. That is the reason why I think that if you, if you want to understand Latin America, it's very important to read Euclides da Cunha, mm. Osher Toys. It's a book that gives you an idea of the way in which uh, ideas transform themselves uh, and produce, you know, brutal divisions and uh, uh, which are behind all the, uh, the dictatorships, um, civil wars that we have been experiencing in our, our history. And um, it is true that things have changed a lot since the kind of Latin America that existed when I was young. No? At that time, there were dictatorships practically all over Latin America, with the exception of, of three countries, no? Costa Rica, Chile, and Uruguay. That were the, that were the exceptions in which there was democracy. And, but the rest was, uh, this has changed a lot since. Now, Dictatorships, we have, well, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, but practically, and the rest, we have civilian governments, uh, governments born out of uh, more or less free elections, and, uh, <laughs> but the, the problem, the problem with these fragile democracies is corruption. Corruption is now the very great illness of, of Latin American democracies, you know. The case of Peru, for example, is, is really tragic, you know. The last five presidents are or in prison or fugitives of, of justice or investigated by, 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 the, by, by judges because they were robbing the country when there were presidents, you know. It's really, really tragic that when we at last have democracy, corruption is destroying democratic institutions, and uh, uh, so we, we have to change things, uh, thinking you, that it's better to have corrupt democracies than dictatorships, which are always very corrupt, and we, we know exactly what are the consequences of a dictatorship, no? You were running for president. Huh? You were running for president 29 years ago in well, Peru. Yes. And, and I was and lucky enough of, of not have won the election. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in some ways, I can't help thinking that the dilemma you describe in the war of the end of the world somehow a little bit repeated itself in the elections where you participated in the way that all of a sudden this unknown candidate, Fujimori, pops up and is seen as the candidate of the poor against the rich, white, upper class mm -hmm. uh, with whom you were identified. 
Well, you know, it was not exactly like that, no. Uh, um, I think Fujimori, well, this is something very, very, I didn't know that Fujimori was a candidate 15 days before the election. There were 10 candidates, and there were only three mm. or four that appeared in the surveys, yeah. and Fujimori never had appeared in the surveys before, so I didn't know. I didn't know that there was a candidate called Fujimori. Only 15 days before, I, I discovered that he was a, a candidate. And, um, and he had been a, a, a candidate, well, very discreet, uh, without much money, uh, but he worked very uh, effectively, very successfully, in the poorest sections of, of society, uh, the poorest sections in, in districts, and, and he had, in the first round of the, of the elections, 20% of the vote, which was, of course, enormous. And, uh, and so, Alan Garcia, who was the president of Peru, uh, immediately decided to support with the, mm. all well, the instruments of the, of the state and and since uh, the, 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 the result of the, of the first round of the elections were known, I knew that I was defeated. That, uh, and it was very difficult, in spite of this conviction, you know, that I would be defeated in the second round, uh, to keep you know, uh, fighting for the, for the results. And uh, I knew that... Uh, uh, the, the Partido Aprista and the left would be immediately supporting Fujimori, and, uh, which was what, what happened, no? Um, but you know, I, I was very discreet. I accepted the, the, the result of the, of the election. I went to congratulate Fujimori, and I went immediately to Europe to, to write again. <laughs> for, for three years I have been practically without writing literature, only the speeches, you know. And, uh, so I was, I was very happy to, to return to literature, having discovered that I was not a political person, no, not at all. Uh, but, and I didn't criticize Fujimori at all, at all, during two years, until he produced the coup d'etat. Mm. So he destroyed democracy, I am against dictators, so I started to, criti to criticize him since then. Um, without much, uh, let's say, uh, happiness, because I was really fed up with politics uh, at that time. But I, I thought that it was my obligation if I was fighting dictatorships and to fight the dictatorship that was established in, in, in Peru, you know, and which was quite brutal and quite corrupt also, you know, uh, and it lasted, well, many, many, many years. But look what is happening now. He's in prison, 25, he's condemned 25 years. Her daughter, his daughter is in prison, and his son uh, is now selling vegetables in the in the in Lima market, you know? So he's doing an honest work. Yeah, so 
but don't you and see I him? think this is the end of Fujimorismo. My impression is that this is the end, you know? Do you see him and his campaign against you as a forerunner of the populism? We see of the? Populism, populism that we see today. Yeah. Trump, Brexit, Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, Lopez Obrador in Mexico, no? He's also a populist. Uh, you have populism of the, of the left, populism of the right, Populism is, is everywhere, it's in Europe, you know. Uh, and probably the worst aspect of populism is nationalism, which is still very, very strong, is reappearing in, in Europe after the, the catastrophes of two world wars. You would think that after that, nationalism would disappear. But no, it's still there. and. Uh, and, and, and nationalism and, and populism can destroy probably the most altruistic and generous project of, of democracy, which is the European Union. I think that European Union is, is extremely important in order that the, the Western world would be present in the future when great uh, conglomerates uh, will be directing the world, you know. I think the Western world should be there, and that the only way in which the Western world can be there is if the European Union, the project of integrated Europe, would uh, succeed, you know. Uh, but I think nationalism is one of the great uh, obstacles for the, the success of the building of Europe, you know. In uh, our friend Don Rigoberto says that when somebody says with pride, I'm Swedish or French or Chinese, he pulls his gun <laughs> and fires it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think that Rigoberto is uh, uh, right, at least in his uh, uh, rejection of all forms of nationalism. I think nationalism has been probably after uh, religion, the worst uh, cause of, of wars and uh, divisions and uh, uh, persecutions, uh, repression in the, in the world, you know. We know that in, in Latin America, nationalism has been the, the source of civil wars, brutal civil wars, has been the pretext to invest um, enormous uh, amounts of money in, in weapons and, uh, and in Europe, well, you, 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 know, you know perfectly well what was uh, the, the result of these wars in which nationalism was the source. No? And, but in spite of all this, still nationalism uh, reappears, you know, uh, and particularly in a, in, a, in a given moment in which the great contribution of uh, uh, Europe to the world, which was democracy, democratic institutions, uh, freedom, freedom of the press, freedom of criticism, the coexistence in diversity, uh, seemed to be uh, winning the war. Uh, and in that precise moment, nationalism reappears as a great obstacle for progress, for civilization, 
So you that say means it, that the, the it seems to we, ne we never wins the war, you know. So we 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 win battles, but the war is never won, you know. But are you a pessimist? I I am not a, well. Uh, I I remember something that I heard saying Karl Popper in the last visit that he uh, did to Spain a few months before his death. He was asking a press conference if he was a pessimist and if and uh, and he said, "Look, there are many things that are horrendous in our time, but." When you f feel depressed about this, remember one thing, that never in our long, long history have we been better than now. We are now much, much better than in all historical uh, periods in, in our life. I think that this should give us at least some optimism vis-a-vis -vis the future. Huh? And I think he's absolutely right. We have never been better than in our days, even if things are going badly uh, for, for, for a contemporary vision of, of, of history. I think it's true. We have never been better, you know. I, I can't help thinking of your latest novel in English, The Neighborhood, mm -hmm. which is about the downfall of Fujimori and his Chief yes. of Security Montesino, and um, the final chapter is called a "Happy Ending," but with a question mark. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, it's a novel. It's not about Fujimori. It's about the way in which journalism, distorted journalism, was used by the dictatorship in order to corrupt you know, the opposition, mm -hmm. the adversaries, and something that is, I think, happening for, for the first time in history. Now, the, the way in which publicity can be used to distort the facts, uh, to produce fake news that can manipulate a whole society, uh, is something that is happening for the first time in, in the first world and in the third world simultaneously, you know. And I think it's something that we try to, to face because that can be the great instrument of repression in the, in the future, you know. And it's something that can destroy internally uh, and discreetly the democratic institutions, democracy itself, and disappear freedom, disappear freedom, you know. But typically for your novels, something unexpected happens because the yellow journalist, this little woman who works at this horrendous gossip oh, You mean in magazine, the novel, yes. Yes, in the novel, all of a sudden turns around and she's the one who brings the regime down. Yeah, well, that is a proof that I am not a pessimist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but then again, to let us return to the uh, final chapter, because we also simultaneously follow the Lima upper class, mm -hmm. and which are more occupied by their little erotic games mm -hmm. than they are by politics. And, and we see them somehow settling again. The bad men have gone. 
But they, you know, this, this erotic relationship between these two ladies mm -hmm. wouldn't be possible without the, the climate that has been created by the civil war, by terrorism, uh, um, but uh, the, the presence of the, of the military in, in private lives, and uh, this has distorted in such a way, you know, the traditional habits of, of, of people that produce something new, uh, uh, worse things, but some be better things too, mm. a, a kind of liberation of uh, mers, of uh, customs, you know, and uh, uh, I, I wanted to, to describe in this brutal context that we live in the 80s, because of the civil war, because of, of, of terrorism, the way in which this had an unexpected consequences in daily life, uh, in, the, in the moral life of families, and, uh, uh, and also the way in which a, a little woman could produce historical, mm -hmm. very essential changes in, in, in the history of a society. No? But why did you call the final chapter happy ending and then add this question mark? Is you that because... Why, why uh, the, the title of the, of, the no, of, the, of the novel? No, of the final chapter, which in the English translation uh -huh, is called yes. happy ending. And yes. then there is this question mark who some, which somehow spoils the joy of the reader. Uh, because, because you, you never know, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Huh? <laughs> it's, it's life is so unexpected, you know, and... I, I, I don't know what would happen with all these characters, and uh, I don't even know if these ladies are, are hap happy with this new freedom mm. that they have discovered, or if they would be, on the contrary, uh, uh, repenting of what they had done. And, uh, uh, so this question mark is... Uh, uh, a question mark for all the stories. At the end, all the stories finish with a question mark. The reason I look a bit distracted is that I have a text up here that we are closing up to the end of it. <laughs> and I was given a photocopy of the opening page of... Uh, okay. <laughs> you have it, yes. I somehow thought I had it. So I am, I am going to read the... <laughs> So, because I think the, the time beginning has come. of the of the not the beginning of the yes of, uh, uh, of the way to paradise. way to paradise. Yes. Okay. So it's uh, this is the beginning of the book. Flora and Auxerre, Abril de 1844. Abrió los ojos a las cuatro de la madrugada y pensó: Hoy comienzas a cambiar el mundo, Florita. No la abrumaba la perspectiva de poner en marcha la maquinaria que al cabo de algunos años transformaría la humanidad desapareciendo la injusticia. Se sentía tranquila, con fuerzas para enfrentar los obstáculos que le saldrían al paso. Como aquella tarde en Saint-Germain, diez años atrás, en la primera reunión de los ansimonianos, cuando escuchando a Prosper Enfantin, Describir a la pareja Mesías que redimiría al mundo se prometió a sí misma con fuerza, la mujer Mesías serás tú. 
pobres ansimonianos, con sus jerarquías enloquecidas, su fanático amor a la ciencia y su idea de que bastaba poner en el gobierno a los industriales y administrar la sociedad como una empresa para alcanzar el progreso. Los habías dejado muy atrás, andaluza. Se levantó, se asió y se vistió sin prisa. La noche anterior, luego de la visita que le hizo el pintor Jules Lor para desearle suerte en su gira, había terminado de alistar su equipaje y con Marie Madeleine, la criada, y el aguatero Noel Tafanael, lo bajaron al pie de la escalera. Ella misma se ocupó de la bolsa con los ejemplares recién impresos de la Unión Obrera. Debía pararse cada cierto número de escalones a tomar, a tomar aliento, pues pesaba muchísimo. Cuando el coche llegó a la casa de la Rue du Bac para llevarla al embarcadero, Flora llevaba despierta muchas horas. Du har lyttet til en podcast fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Husk, at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast-app. Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre, der også kunne være interesserede. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jacobsen.